My name is Paul Michael Raspa Jr. and I'm here to inspire you to go bigger with your dreams and goals so that you can give bigger with your profits. Welcome to the Go Big to Give Big podcast, where we are challenging six-figure earners to become seven-figure givers. My name is Randy Mullen, and each week, my co-host Steve Arneson and I are interviewing successful entrepreneurs, professional athletes, philanthropists, and other high-performing humans that are inspiring us with their stories. We go deep into uncovering how they have become successful and why generosity is an impact they want to leave on this world. Our mission is to have you leave this podcast wanting to go bigger with your dreams and goals so that you can give bigger with your profits. Let's not waste any more time and jump right into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Go Big to Give Big podcast. But before we jump into the episode today, I just wanted to share about our new Facebook community. It is already growing and is filled with incredible entrepreneurs that are dreaming bigger and giving bigger. And if you like this podcast, you're going to want to jump into that conversation over on the Go Big to Give Big community on Facebook. And with that, I'm excited to share today's episode with you. It is with the operational master, Paul Michael Raspa Jr., Paul is a fractional CEO for multiple companies and has found his niche in helping visionaries deliver on their vision and stay on course. And in this episode, Paul dives into uh, what the biggest changes are from going from six figures to seven figures, the big difference between visionary and integrator, and we end up having some great conversation around nonprofits and their expenses and overhead, and how we can ask some simple questions to find out if the organization you want to support is being efficient with their donations. Paul is also the COO of the Make Money Matter Foundation, so he is well-equipped to handle the conversations that we threw at him today. And this was such a fun episode, and it is such a joy uh, bringing Paul in to speak about what a true integrator views in entrepreneurship. So I hope you enjoy listening to this incredible episode with Paul Raspa. All right. I'm excited to welcome my good friend, Paul Michael Raspa Jr. to the show, dude. Thanks so much for coming on. Glad to be here. This is going to be fun. Um, You and I met uh, just briefly about six months ago or so. And uh, have become pretty close since, uh, just bouncing ideas back and forth and doing some things. And uh, one of the things I love the most about you, though, is that you are just an absolute phenomenal integrator. You are all things operations so much so that we were just joking before this that that you could literally run this podcast yourself because you have all the notes in front of you and everything we sent you prior to. You're like the only guest that's ever been like, hey, so I just want to check this is how it's going to look. And uh, I just love that about you, dude, because so many people... Uh, not hide behind that, but you're proud of what you've been able to create as that. And we're going to dive in through your journey of how you went through a little bit into the public light and then now stepped back. Um, but I'd love for you to just kind of walk us through that whole, uh, just walk us through that whole journey. Like, how did you get into entrepreneurship? How did you go from ministry to where you are now? And uh, just give us the cliff notes. Sure. I mean, the reality is we're all on this an amazing journey together. And my journey really in terms of business operations, integration started way back when I was a teenager, um, would get tapped as the one that could organize my way out of just about anything. <clears throat> so whether it was at school or in church or in class projects, anything, I was always the one that organized everything for everyone and led the troops into battle. And, uh, and I found that I could just do that naturally, whereas some folks had to really think about it, work at it. It was a natural gift for me. And then I just continued to refine it and hone it over the years. And it really became my best asset. Um, and I've worked in a lot of different industries over the years, have lots of different roles, some very, very public, um, out there in front of large numbers of people traveling the country, speaking on stages. I've run big events, everything from a couple hundred or a couple thousand up to 24,000 people in a stadium. Whoa. Um, I've, I've really done some crazy stuff. I've planned big events for celebrities before, but I've also done a lot of really small practical things, worked with solopreneurs and entrepreneurs and coaches and such. And part of what I realized was I can get out on stage. 
and I can speak. I can get out there and be in the limelight. But at the end of the day, regardless of how well I do or don't do that, does it feed the soul? That's, that was really the question I had to get back to. And I realized as much as I could do those things, those were also some things that zapped my energy that really, uh, really just drained me as a human. And um, some of those moments left me a little bit wounded, left me a little bit scarred. And yeah. so there was a whole era of my life, really about 10 to 15 years of my life, where I let the pendulum swing the other way. And I went back and I was like, I don't want to be in anybody's limelight. I don't want to be on socials. I don't want to have anything out there that has my name. I don't, I don't want to be on stage. I would actually avoid stage opportunities. I don't want to be out there teaching. I just want to kind of hide. And, and part of what I realized was that wasn't serving me either. And that wasn't serving most of the folks out there. And so it was really about figuring out where my giftedness was and then how to own that giftedness and share it with others. And I realized that I'm an amplifier. At, at my core, I'm an amplifier. I know how to help the folks that are bright lights out there shine like freaking beacons. How to help those folks that are the best at what they do in changing the world, changing business, changing life, and help them do that even better in a more focused way, in a more organized way, in a more deliberate way. And because that's so easy for me, I end up putting my fingers in lots of different things. So um, these days, I'm actually running seven different companies uh, to greater and lesser degrees um, that, I, that I'm a partner in. And, um, and, and some people are like, oh my gosh, like, how could you do that? Or if you look at my schedule, people are like, I could never live like that. I can, today alone is a 14-hour day for me. Um, and I can do that. And I love doing that, actually, because it feeds, feeds me, feeds my heart, feeds my soul, because I know how to help people shine. And that's really what it comes back to for me. Organization is the tool that gets me there. Project management, running companies, running organizations, that's the easy part. It's about the mission of it, the purpose of it, which is really about helping people shine. And that's that's what I do. A giver in and out. The first question I got to ask, are you extroverted or introverted? I am highly introverted, actually. Yeah? Um, you know, I live in a very extroverted world. We all do, especially as people. Um, I am in a lot of extroverted sort of roles, but I'm a high introvert. And so uh, my family knows that when I go out and do speaking gigs or I go out and travel and like this whole next 14 days, I'm on the road for 13 out of 14 days, traveling, speaking, doing different meetings and events and such. And I will come back into this lovely little office and hide and close the door <laughs> to recharge. Um, and that'll be an important part of it. So introvert for sure but live in an extroverted world. So you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask that because it's like as somebody that's on stage and, and has been in that limelight and done this stuff and then realizing that it wasn't for you and then going and hiding and then realizing that also wasn't for you. It's kind of that just that weird mix of like, are you extroverted or are you introverted? And it sounds like you found how to manage both, um, not saying either one is right or wrong. Yeah, I think that's true for just about anything in life, whether it's people or even kind of that introversion, extroversion piece. There's things that we have to do in order to achieve the outcome that we want. So it may not be your best skill. It may not be what you find fun, but you have to do it in order to get to the destination that you desire, at least do it in short spurts or for periods of time. And, you know, it's not that I don't love people. I actually love hanging with people. I love interacting with people. I just also know that it depletes my energy if I don't restore yeah. in between that. That's awesome. Um, Shifting gears a little bit here, and we're going to get into the the foundations, and, and you obviously are the CEO of a really incredible Make Money Matter foundation and, and have done a lot of really cool stuff with charities. But sticking to the business side, you shared a story with me that I'd love for you to kind of just break down, a, a, and it'll lead to a question for me, but uh, a, a month or so ago or a few a few months ago, you got called and it was like, hey, Paul, I'm running this event and I'm kind of in over my head and I, and operationally, we just aren't sound right now. Can you come kind of save us and get us back on track and do that? Why would somebody call you? Like, What what value does that bring? How do you go in and save the day? And how do we prevent ourselves from getting to that point where we're over our heads and needing to do the 911, Paul, we need you in now kind of call? Well, well, first of all, let me say, I don't want to be a savior and I don't want the 911 call. <laughs> um, however, I get those. And, and Really, my intent in those moments, and I'll go a little bit more into the story in a moment, but when somebody calls me with a 911, like that particular circumstance, I will often go in and say, I can help you work through this. 
I can help you fix the problem in this moment. If and only if we can also talk about how do we prevent it the next time around so that you don't come back to me with another 911 six months from now or a year from now. So it's, it's the both end because I think too often, particularly entrepreneurs, we're so focused on, on quick action, massive action, just go and we'll figure it out on the way down. And I get that and I love that. Yet there's things that we can do that save ourselves and our, and our clients and our partners pain and quite frankly, a lot of money. So if we are able to do some of the planning, if we're able to get out there ahead of the issues before they become a crisis, it's a lot easier to respond. And that having that confidence and clarity that we've worked through things in advance allows us to adapt on the spot with great swiftness and efficiency. But if we didn't do all that planning on the front end, we're basically screwed in that moment. Like your, your options are really limited. You can do A or B, whereas before you may have had 25 options that you could pick from. And so my thing is like, how do we prevent this from happening again in this circumstance? It may come up again. It may, if we may land in that same situation again, but I want to always say, how do we get there um, in a way now that solves the immediate problem to get us to our immediate outcomes, but can we prevent it again in the future? And in that circum, the story in that one was uh, a colleague of mine had been tapped to be part of an event and in dialogue with the event organizer, some circumstances had come up where the plans that they had put in place had kind of gone sideways. Um, and they were left in a situation where they weren't going to be able to run the event and achieve the outcomes they desired. They had sold seats to an event. Um, it was a, a really remote location in the jungle. Um, it was a great opportunity. And yet a lot of the substance of what was going to make it a transformational event had not come together way that, the way that they had desired. And here we were about three weeks out from the event. And my colleague said, hey, can you just jump on a call and see if you might be able to give them a little bit of guidance? I jumped on the call, which turned into, oh my gosh, there's a lot of things that we can do here to, to help right this ship, but there's going to take some massive action to get there. And uh, 24 hours later, I was basically brought in as the event producer to help upend this and turn it around, execute the event. And we had a great event for about 60 people. And it was a beautiful thing out in the middle of nowhere in the jungle. Um, but that said, the immediate follow-up to that was, okay, how do we change this pattern for next year's events that you might want to do or for future trainings you're going to offer? Because I don't want to be connected to you if you're just going to do this as a one-time crisis and we're just going to get into the next crisis. And luckily, that person was like, teach me, show me, let me do this better because this is not my best skill, but it clearly is yours. So help me learn from that moment. Well, I think uh, one of the things that I heard out of that, like, the, the two pillars of confidence and clarity. And I think that I'd love to dive in there just for a second, because so many of us as business owners are primarily on that visionary track versus the integrator. And with visionary people, I feel like visions can change so frequently. And, and, you know, maybe there's this desire to constantly just like add and evolve. Um, but the thing that I, I've personally struggled with is the confidence of your own clarity, not necessarily them together, but like, you know, just being really confident in the clarity that you create or that you want to, you know, um, pursue and, and double down onto. What are you seeing today that I'll say like business owners need to uh, like prepare on or get ahead of or you know, scaling a business from six figures to seven figures. Yeah, let's break that into a couple parts there because the confidence piece is really a physical sort of element. We think about it as, oh, it's a mental game, which is what it becomes. But confidence starts with how do you show up in this world? And a lot of times I think people are focused on how the showiness of it, the hype, if you will, of it. what's my image? What am I wearing the right brand of clothing? Is my hair done the right way? Is the lighting correct on my Instagram you know, video and that sort of thing? It's how we show up as humans. That's the core piece. So physically, how are you showing up? And I think that we're often like, oh, well, I'm busy. I'll get around to working out later or I'll eat better, you know, when I have more time or I'll do the things physically set me up and then they move into 
when it's when it's a better time and when it's more opportune. Same thing with the mental. Oh, I don't have time to meditate. Oh, I don't have time to like reflect and get clear my thoughts and and that sort of thing. Emotionally, I don't I'll deal with that emotional nurturing stuff. I'm a guy after all. Who cares about emotions? Emotions are bad. You know, like we don't do those things that set us up to have confidence when we walk into a space. And what what many of us don't realize is it's not the words that we say, it's how we show up. It's the very being that we are. Mm. So we have an opportunity as business owners to show up differently. And a lot of that is rooted in, in the things that we do in terms of daily rituals, um, that we do in terms of routine, things that we do to reassure ourselves that we are loved and lovable and loving. That goes a long way because then people are like, oh, those are soft skills. Those don't matter. They actually are critical to having the clarity that we want in business. Because mm-hmm. when you understand who you are and you're taking care of this thing that is you, then when you walk into a room or you jump on a Zoom call or you pick up the phone or you're texting someone, you're starting from a place that says, I am in a space that is at least neutral, if not joyous and productive as a person. As opposed to the kind of the, oh shit, I'm in a bad space, I'm in crisis, I'm stressed, we've got to do this, we have no other options. So it's really about preparing yourself to engage. The clarity is the second part though. That comes from having not just vision of where you're headed, but more importantly, why are you heading there? And that is, I think, the biggest challenge for entrepreneurs. And it, it shows in the way that they run their business they're like, oh, we got to get to this point. We got to go to destination A. That's awesome. But then they get derailed because somebody made a suggestion or somebody said that they didn't like their Instagram post about the topic or their mother sent them a question that said, why are you talking about this online or whatever it may be? Because they're not clear with the, what their intent was. Why were you doing this? What, what was your motive for getting to point A? That's almost always rooted in values. And when people are really clear, like, this is where I'm going and this is why I'm going there. The this is why I'm going there is the piece that propels them through the ups and downs and is what really conveys to everyone else. People listen because of where you're going. They stay listening because of why you're going there. I like that. So do you find that, um, you know, the the businesses that may not have that really clear why in that six-figure area, uh, is that preventing them from scaling to higher levels? Or is that that kind of like attraction that... I think it is, particularly for in the entrepreneurial setting. Mm, interesting. And when you're talking like the solopreneur or where there's one or two individuals that are really driving that vision forward, if they're not clear as to why they're doing what they're doing, then we're going to hit some stumbling blocks. The other piece there is, is sometimes our motive is not as genuine as we think it is. Um, hey, I'm doing this because it matters. But the parenthetical is, but not really. And a lot of times people's motive is really about, um, especially when they start talking about money. I just want to make more money. I just want to have money. Why do you want to have money? is a really important question. And in many cases, it's a significant seeking piece. I want to have money to prove that I have worth. I want to have money to show somebody else that I'm better than them. I want to have money to prove to my parents or to my, who, my teacher that told me I'll never amount to anything or whomever. They're trying to prove something to somebody else. And it's a pretty shallow motive at that point. When we, when we zoom way out, it's real, but it's very shallow in those moments. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you trying to make money? Becomes the important question. Why are you trying to impact lives even? Why are you trying to seek love? Those are all really noble, important, valuable things, money, love, and purpose. But if you're not clear as to the why, then you're going to keep shifting around. And people are like, I don't believe them. I don't trust them. I don't get it. They said this, but they did that. And we get out of integrity and those sorts of things. That happens because we're not clear on why we're really doing what we're doing. And my experience is that's an evolutionary process. 
you know, when we are young, I want to do this. Well, why, why did you want to become whatever it was, you know, a fireman, a lawyer, um, a billionaire, you know, an astronaut, whatever it was when you were a kid, why did you want to do that? And most of us were told because that's important or that makes you big or that makes you significant in our world or that's what our world needs or something like that or those people are rich. And so like, okay, that's okay. But as you evolve, does your motive get clearer or does it get more foggy? And I think for some people, it gets more foggy because they're like, I don't know, I was just kind of following this. And then when I got to that or when those people did that, I realized, yeah, who cares? Um, and so I would decide this was why I was doing stuff or that's why I was doing stuff. When you have a clear destination and a clear reason why you're going there, nothing can stop you. Any obstacle, you will go under, over, or through. You might have to take a detour here and there. You may even have to stop and start, but it becomes clear. This is why I'm going there. And y'all can either lead, follow, or get out of the way. And that's a beautiful thing about having that vision and that clarity there, even if other people don't understand it. And that's one of the things that I think entrepreneurs are kind of good at kind of giving that FU piece. Well, I'm going there, like get out of my way but they're not clear themselves as to why they're going there. And so then they start having that self-doubt piece internally, which turns into crisis for them as they get, become more successful. Oh man, this is crazy. Like the biggest integrator in the world, it all comes down to just your mental state. And then once your mental state's good, the integration actually gets quite easy, which I think is obviously in congruence with your story of as, as you found more of your purpose, things just got easier and you could take more on and work 14 hours a day and you're actually not exhausted, tired at the end of it. And you're very productive in what you do. Um, as, as you work with a lot of, um, executives and people, do you typically find people that have counseling or coaching of sorts, um, to be, more on track than someone who doesn't have counseling or coaching or something. Typically, those are the ones like, I guess, like what I'm asked is like the ones that are in like the buddy running the event, are they typically the ones that are in SOS, save me? Do they not have coaching and support? And the ones that are like, hey, we've got this, we just need some support. They have the coaching. Does that make sense? The correlation I'm trying to make there? I don't know that there's always a correlation. <clears throat> I will tell you that folks that have coaches and really strong mentorship around them move faster. Mm. They tend to move more swiftly. They also tend to jump off the cliff faster <laughs> and crash and burn faster. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a double-edged sword in that. But I think that there is a correlation to speed and there is a correlation to efficiency. I believe that every entrepreneur should have a strong system of mentorship, advisors, coaches in their space, advising them and, and more so to give them the perspective of what they can't see. There's a notion that if you're standing inside a picture frame, you can't see the picture because you're in it. Having somebody that's outside of you that you trust and respect and has the wisdom and expertise that you require that can look in and share with you Really, the real and the raw truth of what's going on. Hey, you're, you're doing well at this. You're really not doing well at this and be able to call you on that stuff really bluntly yeah. is immense value. The challenge is way too many of us in the entrepreneurial space are a little unhealthy narcissistic. <laughs> and, and because of that, we don't want to hear that feedback. We say we do, but as soon as we give it, we're like, don't give that to me. Like, I really, th thanks for your opinion, but you're wrong. And we dismiss it. And then we go and we make the mistake. And then we're like, well, why didn't they tell me? They must not be a good mentor. They could not, they must not be a good friend. They must not be a good advisor to me because, well, I still ended up crashing and burning. So it's about opening yourself in a vulnerable way with a person or a small number of people that you really respect so that they can help you succeed faster. I will tell you on the flip side of that, the sanity side of that is that entrepreneurship is a crazy roller coaster. <laughs> it is not predictable. It is not consistent. It is rarely smooth. And 
if you don't have the right support structures in place, starting with basic self-care pieces, but then having you know the right people around you to support you in terms of family and friends and having professionals that can help guide you, particularly therapists, if you, especially if you've got trauma or things from your past that you haven't been able to work through, they will show up in your business and they will show up in the least opportune moment. When you're already down, that's when they will we- wield their head and push you down further. So if you have those supports in place and you're working through those things, the impact of them is not going to be nearly as severe on you because you're going to be able to navigate them faster. It doesn't mean you're still not going to have them. You will. But it's about how can you navigate them faster, rebound faster time and time again. In the context of starting to get more of like the actual tangible integration side of things, um, you know, as a visionary, you said, uh, you described to me very well where it's just build the planes on the way down, things crash and burn. It's all good. We'll fix it later. Stuff like that. How can we as, as visionaries put some stuff in place so that things can be more organized or things don't have to crash and burn? Like, and, and I don't know how we can actually go as tangible without dissecting a full business for hours, but how do we actually like, uh, put CRMs in place or how do you, you know, for example, you start a, a new company and you want to launch webinars and you're getting sales. And then all of a sudden you go back and the bank account's a mess, the CRM's a mess, everything's messy and you can't go back and fix it. That's every entrepreneur I know has been through that. So what are some of the mechanics that we can put in place to not have to face that struggle? Because I know that causes the st- uh, stress, pressure, pain, and a lot of problems that come with being an entrepreneur. So being preventative. Before we get into the tactical, that granular tactical, I want to zoom out a half a step because a lot of this for me comes back to outcomes. We make a lot of assumptions out there and whether you're working as a solo or you're working with a small team or you're working with a large team, being super clear with yourself about what your desired outcome is, is important. And often I will jump on meetings and people are like, let's dive into the details. Let's go there fast. And I'm like, talk about what are we trying to achieve? Like, let's just write that on the board or let's write that down right now. Let's put the words. What are we trying to achieve? What is our key outcome? This will be a success if we do this. If we hit this mark, if we hit this number, if we sell this many units, then what we're doing will be a success. So articulate that out. And even if you're just a solopreneur, taking the time to actually write that out pull out your phone, put it on an Apple note, outcomes for this product or outcomes for this training that we're going to do or outcomes for this this investment that we're going to undertake. Get super clear with yourself what the outcome is. Start with the end in mind. Excuse me? Starting with the end in mind. It's starting with the end in mind. Yes. So we go back to Covey. Uh, it's, it really is starting with the end in mind, but articulating it. And I think that sometimes we think that the end has to be big and grandiose. It doesn't. It just has to be specific. Then what happens is every decision that you start to make is is a binary question. Is this moving me toward or away from that state outcome? Should we spend this money on this? Yes or no? Is it moving us towards the desired outcome? Um, This is particularly important when you start talking real estate and and, and (laughs) when rehabs and that sort of thing. Gosh, that looks really cool. I'd love to have that in my house. Is it going to help us with the resale value? (laughs) Yes or no. Um, Is it going to maximize our profits on this project? Yes or no. But if you have clear outcomes defined, getting there is a lot easier. Way too often, we're just kind of generalized. Like we want things to be successful or we want to make money. And then we walk in circles, waste a ton of time, a ton of energy, a ton of money, only to realize, like, had we been clear on the front end what we were trying to get out of something, we could short circuit that time and really just get there fast. I just did this literally yesterday with one of the companies that I'm being brought into. And they were like, we have all these big initiatives that we want to do. And we listed out the big rocks. And there was like 13 of them I think, on this list. And, and they were like, we want to do them all. And we would want to do them all like yesterday. So like, we've got to just jump and go. And I'm like, you have four people. You cannot achieve all of these outcomes in real time right now 
with four people. What's most important? And the answer was, well, they're all important. We got to do them all. No, what's the key outcome? At the end of the day, what's the key outcome? And it was really clear once they talked it through, hey, this piece is the most important outcome because without this one being solid, the others are going to just keep fluctuating. We're going to have good months, bad months. Some of these pieces are going to go sideways. We're going to lose money for a long period of time on some of these ventures. If we're clear on the outcome, hey, that means we need to put this piece first and this piece second and this piece third in the seat. Well, gosh, then all these other ones are going to fall into place and they're going to be natural successes because they will have created demand. They will have created the revenue necessary to fund them. All the pieces fall in. But if you don't have the clear outcome on the front end, you're just going to keep going in circles. So, so that's definitely where it has to start before you can start to jump into the tactical piece. Um, the other part there is just the priorities. Like, I don't know how many entrepreneurs tell me that everything is number one. Everything's in the number one <laughs> slot. And guilty, the reality is, guilty. if there's more than one thing in the number one slot, then nothing is in the number one slot. And I used to try to defy that. I was convinced that I could out-organize and out-plan and put everything in the number one slot and prove other people wrong. Um, and I can do that sometimes for a day or two or three at a time. But the reality is, as soon as you zoom out and look at a month or look at a couple of weeks at a time, the reality is if you don't have something in the number one slot that you've called out and said, this is the biggest priority. And it may even just be, this is the biggest priority for now. But other things may be a bigger priority a month from now or six months from now, or in the, in the total of the year, there may be something else that's the number one priority. But for right now, this is the number one priority and putting them in an order allows your brain to then sort through things. But if you just say, hey, all these things in the bucket are all equally valued, it doesn't work. Oh, that was some gold, Paul. I'm just sitting here laughing because it's so funny that Steve and I are very opposite. I'm very, very visionary, 100% visionary. And Steve's kind of like you. He's like a 50-50 visionary integrator. And uh, I'm sure Steve's uh, laughing internally because a lot of the stuff he said about visionaries is me 100%. And Steve's like you of like, but if we just took two minutes to draw some circles, we would be a lot better off than just spending five days of just firing and shooting. And that is the the reality of a lot of hundred uh, percent visionary entrepreneurs. Is it is just that you know fire, shoot, aim, and then and then figuring it out. But at the same time, bringing someone like you or Steven to kind of mold it a little bit better and and make sure that you're not spraying and praying. 360 degrees that you can actually fine tune it a little bit and give yourself a better shot. Uh, sounds exactly like what you do. And when you come into businesses, help them just get a little bit better uh, vision. One of the things I'll say is a maturity piece for visionaries is that you can humble yourself enough to realize that you work best in an interdependent way, partnership, collaborative way that you can say to your integrator or to the people that are around you, help me sort this out. Then you know that you're moving up that maturity scale for the visionary. My, my, large, my best business partner, my, the person that I own the most companies with, he and I are very different in a lot of ways. We share common values, but our approach is very different. Our personalities are very different. And one of the things He's able to say to me, especially in one-on-one conversation, we don't do it in front of a whole big meeting, but he'll say, hey, help me see what I don't see in this. Help me organize this. I've got 27 ideas, and in my head, they're all equal. They're all really good. They're all really important. We can make tons of money on all these. Help me sort them out. And sometimes just the mere act of, well, let's list them out. Let's start to prioritize them is enough for him to then turn around and be like, okay, now I've got even more clarity. We got to push these ones to this side, we push these ones to this side for, for now. And here's the one or two that we need to focus on. So now let's dig into those. So sometimes if you have a partner, a collaborator, an integrator to work with that visionary, and they, they're willing to say, let's figure this out together because I got a ton of ideas, then you're moving in the right direction. Love that, Paul. And I want to flip the page a little bit as well and ask you, like, how does um, the integrator mature? Like you mentioned the the visionary aspect on things, but 
flipping that page to the other half of that coin kind of thing, that one-two punch of the integrator. And real quick, because we do have to move on to like our, our giving aspect of the, of the conversation as well, but uh, what, what's your best answer there? The integrator has to constantly be learning. And the integrator, I think, has to know what their role is really clearly. And sometimes it's really hard for folks to be in that integrator role because it's not, often it's not the front person. Often it's seen as the number two in the equation, um, the lesser uh, in that. And, and really it's not, even though it may look that way or appear that way. So part of what the integrator has to do is get really clear for themselves and constantly be working at how do we deepen our emotional intelligence? How do we also build the networks and the skills that allow us to support whatever vision gets dreamt up together? You have to constantly be resourcing, moving in a different direction. The other piece is integrators have to have to work with other integrators. So they have to be building that skill of how do I connect with other really powerful men and women who are operating businesses and be able to do that more and more efficiently. It is not like a once you achieve it, you're done. The world is changing. Business is changing way too fast. So you've constantly got to be out there doing the, doing the things, doing the skills, building the networks, making the connections. But the intent is different than what it is on the visionary side. The visionary is about how do you get things started? The integrator is about how do you bring things to completion and fulfillment? So you have to understand that both of those are important. And if you're expecting that only one is growing or only one is exploring new ventures and only one of them is building the relationships, it's not going to be nearly as strong. Both sides of that equation have to be growing and the integrator is not exempt from that. Very well put. And uh, I think basically what should happen is we should just take the last five minutes of this podcast and insert it as a chapter to rocket fuel. I've got copies of it on the shelf over here somewhere. So. Uh, well, jumping onto the giving side of things, I just want to open it up by um, asking a bit of a broad question. But being that how involved you are on that side of things with make uh, the Make Money Matter Foundation, what do you see um, that every charity just needs more of? And capital can't be the answer. Um, charities in general are great at serving people. They suck at business. And, I, and I've said that in a lot of different contexts. And, and I've been on both sides of that. I've been on the business side of running a charity. I've also been on the just get out there and be the, the boots on the ground doing the work. But, but charities in general, they're showing up with their heart more than their head. And when it comes to things that entrepreneurs often think of as second nature, how do we market this? How are we dealing with our financials? How do we, um, how do we plan things out? That those are often the skills that charities lack the most. And, and so being able to marry that in some way where entrepreneurs are able to, whether that's in a volunteer stage or in a, in a giving stage of some fashion, being able to bring some of that knowledge and expertise that we have a business to that charitable space is a real asset to those charities. At the same time, we have to be cautious because charities are charities. There, there are some different rules to, the, to their game. There are some different pieces where if they get too heady, they don't serve efficiently. Um, they start focusing on the numbers rather than on the people and things like that. So it's about finding the right balance and kind of respecting where the charity is. I do think that entrepreneurs are able to fill some of the gaps, especially on the business side of the equation. I'd have to agree. I'm going to ask a quick question and then I got a follow up to what you're talking about. It was like, so when we're talking about that, what's the typical overhead on a charity then when we start actually getting into it? And it's like, you know, a normal charity is like, hey, we got to make some money and bring them in and hire some people. And they don't really think about that. But as a donator, one of the things I ask is like, how are you running it? How are you doing the operations? How much is actually going to overhead? How much is actually going to the cause? Things like that. So what's what are you typically seeing for, for that? I don't know how to answer that, but what are you typically seeing when people ask that question in charities? So I'm going to take it out of charities for a second. When we're starting a new business, how often do we start that business in the negative? How often are we trying to generate the revenue? How often do we have to front money on the, at the beginning that we know will come back to us later in the, in the deal? 
Charities are somewhat the same. Um, there are times in the life cycle of a charity, particularly depending on the type of work that they're doing, that they may have huge overhead. And there's times where they may not have much overhead at all. A lot depends on what they're doing and how they're doing it. It also depends on the type of charity that we're talking about. So there's, there's kind of different classes of charities. And depending on who you ask and such, they're grouped in different buckets. But there's kind of the what I call the boots on the ground people, the people that are actually doing direct service, the people that are out there uh, feeding people, the folks that are out there building houses for the homeless, the folks that are out there like doing stuff that's direct human service. There's another group that's very much about advocacy, is very much about philosophy, is very much about how do we raise awareness about issues that are and concerns that are out there. Um, there's a lot of legislative things that kind of fall into that bucket or kind of in that general category as well. But it's really about how do we go and change people's minds so that they see a problem or see a need differently. And then the third bucket in my world is are the folks that are really just out there to be fundraisers. They're out there to be the ones that are doing vetting, that are bringing groups of donors together, that are raising funds that they are then deploying to the folks in those first two categories. And each one of them is an important part of the ecosystem, and their overhead is very different for each of those. So if you are direct service, I expect that, you're, that your overhead is going to be high. Why? Because you're paying for the services, you're, the people, you're paying for the products that you need in order to be able to service those people. Um, and so your overhead on a strictly budgetary standpoint is high. But most of that is programmatic money. In that middle category, it should be more of a split. In the other cat, on the category where they're raising funds, their overhead should be really minimal. It could be a lot because they're raising a lot of money, but as a percentage, it should be pretty minimal. The key there is to look at the split between what is going into direct service, otherwise known as program money, versus operations money or overhead. So when you start to look at how much they're spending for raising a dollar, how much does it cost them to raise a dollar? Um, that's an important figure to look at. And when you look at how much they're paying for administrative salaries, for their accountants, for their executive director, for their legal counsel, for those sorts of things, that should be a concern. It should be proportionate to the organization at hand. Um, when you look at how much they're spending for their office space, <laughs> to keep the lights on? Do they have a whole bunch of vehicles and things of that nature? Administrative expense is key. It's different from, gosh, these are the people that are out there literally making the food in the soup kitchen. These are the folks that are out there um, leading construction sites for Habitat for Humanity <laughs> and building houses. That's program money. That's a, different, that's a different bucket in the financial part of this. In terms of overhead, I've always said that 5% is a, is a good benchmark. If you are at 5% or less of your overall budget is in your administration as a charity, you're really in a safe zone. And there's a lot of groups out there that when they're evaluating charities, use 5% or somewhere right around 5% as their threshold. When you get higher, it doesn't mean that it's bad or it's wrong. It may just mean that they're in a different stage of the life cycle or because of the type of work they're doing, there's a justifiable reason why it's higher. But I think that it should, you should ask questions if it's above kind of that 5%, particularly when you start to look at some of these organizations where their administrative overhead is 15, 20, 25% of their overall um, intake funds. I think we have to stop and ask why. Why is that number so high, so disproportionately high? Um, and sometimes it's just because like, hey, we're a high profile organization and we pay our executive director a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And then you have to ask yourself the question of, is it worth my dollars going for that? Oh, man. We could sit here for probably four hours and just go deep into the, the charity world because I have so many questions about this. And, and I don't want to go too deep because I think you gave a very, very great answer there for a lot of people because that's probably one of the most common questions I could ask is like, how do you know what's good overhead? What's bad overhead? Where do you do? And you broke that down perfectly. So uh, I'm going to cut that out and use that as a, as a piece for me to, to share with people. Um, I also just kind of wanted to, to touch on something you said, you know, charities are ran like businesses, but they're just ran by people who aren't businesses. 
you're an entrepreneur, you're running a, a charity now. So you're running it as hopefully as efficiently as possible. Um, what can we as maybe uh, entrepreneurs, I'm not going to go jump into a charity tomorrow because I don't have the time or willingness to do that. Why should entrepreneurs unapologetically pursue wealth to support these foundations so that they don't have to have the overhead to go raise money or they can have some more finances in there to, to be able to be able to produce more revenue for their charities more frequently? So there's two quite, there's actually two parts to what you just said there, Randy, and I'll come back to both of them. One is the reality is God is money. And I, I know that's an offensive statement to some people, but there's two things that can move them out. God or a whole lot of money to pay for a whole lot of cravings and dynamite to move it. Other than that, we're not moving them out. And so money is a very powerful tool that's out there. And particularly when it comes to serving people, money can be, can be deployed to really change the world, change lives and fundamentally change the whole ecosystem of what it means to be a human on this planet. It really can change the world. And so for those of us that are so inclined and have financial capital to bring to the table, that's an asset that we can share. Most charities are not great at raising money. Most charities, it's not because of their, of their blatant inefficiency. They're just not well-suited to raise money efficiently because their attention, rightfully so, is on doing service. And so being able to bring capital to the table is really critical to that. The second part of that though, and you kind of alluded to this, Randy, charities have, have administrative needs, administrative function. They also have programmatic function. We like putting our dollars in the programmatic side of things. And why? Because it touches our hearts. We want to see like, that person get help. We want to know when I gave them $10, those $10 to went to help that person or that kid or that situation be better. And we like that because it warmed our heart. As entrepreneurs, I think we have another opportunity out there that most people don't think about. And it's a restricted donation that we can make to charities specifically to apply towards their administrative cost. So you can say, I'm going to give you $1,000, for instance, but I want you to apply that $1,000 towards your administrative overhead. Here's why. So that when you go ask this person over here for $1,000, you can say to them, 100% of your money is going to feed these kids or is going to serve the people through programs. And so sometimes this happens with big corporations where they'll come in and say, hey, charity, we will underwrite a big chunk of your administrative expenses. And there's lots of different ways that they can structure those relationships. But basically, they'll cover the salaries. They will cover the gas and electric bills. They will cover the software expenses and all the administrative stuff that has to happen financially so that the individual donors that are coming in, their funds are all being directed specifically for programs. As business owners, if we're willing to take even a percentage of what we contribute and say, I'm willing to invest that into your administration so that you can pay your, your staff reasonable salaries so that you can keep the lights on, so that you can do the things that must be done in order for you to be able to show up and serve, I think that's a great asset that, that businesses can bring to the table. But it is definitely a heady thing. It is not the type of thing that will touch your heart when you send that check. Well, I absolutely love that. And I think from a strategic, um, like partnership level, when you do recognize and identify what charity it is that you want to attach yourself to, like, I don't think that there's any more impactful way you can do it. Like to be able to stand there and say like, Hey, yes, you know what? We're going to cover your administrative costs. Let, and every single conversation I have, you have, and your entire team has moving forward. You can say that a hundred percent of that next person's donation is going to go to the direct need of it. It's beautiful. It is. It really is. And it, it creates a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. We're able to do that. So for the foundation that I'm part of, uh, that I'm currently leading, we are in negotiations right now with a company where that's going to be the piece that happened. Both their corporate donations as well as the donations from their employees 
are going to specifically be channeled and restricted into covering our administrative expenses so that we can say to all of our donors in good conscience, your money is going directly to serve these children, period. I'm going to ask you a bit of a personal question. Thinking back across your life, brag on yourself for a second and share a story around one of your favorite moments of giving. And it doesn't have to be the biggest check or the most involved you've ever been, but something that really just touches your heart. The moment I was thinking about that earlier, the moments that touch my heart at the deepest levels are when other people realize that a prayer was answered. And one in particular was back when I was probably 16 or 17 years old. I was living in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, a group from my church was working with Habitat for Humanity. And we were renovating houses that were about 75 years old in inner city Baltimore in some of the poorest neighborhoods that were riddled with crime and, and just really crappy places to grow up or live. And these houses were starting to crumble. And these people couldn't afford to tear them down and they couldn't afford to renovate them. And so they lived literally with holes in the floors and the walls and it, it was not safe. And a lot of them had paint and it was just a bad situation. And we were able to go in there and work on these homes and rehabilitate them to a point that made them at least par, at least reasonable to live in. And I remember very distinctly a woman who had lived in that house since she was a child. She was probably in her 40s, maybe early 50s. Her parents or grandparents had purchased that house. She had grown up and lived in that house multiple generations at a time um, since she was a little kid. And now her grandkids were living in this house with her. And she just broke down in tears. She was sitting um, outside the house one day and we're just in there painting and, you know, just doing fun service work. You know, we were kind of all excited because we got to get out there and be construction dudes for the day. And she was just in tears and I couldn't figure out why she was crying. She sat there just, she'd wipe the tears and she'd be okay for five or 10 minutes and then she'd start crying again. And I was like, why is this woman crying? And finally, a couple of us had the courage to walk over to her and ask her, what's going on? Are we doing something wrong? Are we breaking something? Is this something that's not to your, to your liking? And she said, I just never imagined that that we'd be able to live safely in this house. And for the first time in over 20 years, I think that we might be safe to actually live here. And in my mind, I'm like, well, of course, like we just paint the walls and we're just, you know, patching the floors. That was so far beyond what she could imagine that they could afford or do. And she just assumed in her mind that she and her grandkids and her kids would all just live in this poverty and would live without any hope for the duration of their life. And our service was answering a prayer. And so it's those moments when we are able to answer somebody's prayer, especially when it seems like no big deal to us because of how we live and the resources that we have. Gosh, pretty freaking amazing. Nothing more motivating than listening to these stories. I mean, like, that's it. So I'm going to become a gazillionaire tomorrow. I'm just going to go fix people's houses for free. Like, like it's just absolutely heartwarming. And thank you for sharing, Paul. That's special. And it's one of my favorite things on this show is hearing those stories. It just leaves us so inspired. And I hope people listening feel the exact same of like, that's it. That's why we want to become capitalists is so that we can do stuff like this. Right. Um, we could spend all day chatting with you, Paul. I know we've been here a little bit longer than normal and uh, appreciate all the value that you've just dropped for us. But we want to get through this giving round as quick as we can, hammer you out and uh, get some good information. So are you ready? Let's do it. Let's go. Break on one charity that you like. One charity, Make Money Matter Foundation, is uh, a relatively new foundation. We're in that third bucket. So we basically help raise the funds and vet organizations and deploy them. Our mission is all around human trafficking. Um, the statistics are staggering, particularly human trafficking from Central America and Mexico into the United States and Canada. Five kids per minute are crossing the border statistically, and they're going to be put into slavery. 
essentially, most often doing sex acts. And that's a really horrible way to live. And so if we can stop that cycle, that's really what we're out to do. And so we do that by funding a number of different programs. Our current programs are in Mexico, uh, but we're getting ready to expand beyond that. But it's really about how do you change the dynamic of human trafficking coming into the States and and make lives better by doing that. And it's really about how do you deploy funds to do those things that those charities couldn't otherwise do. Paul, thank you for that work that you're doing there. What could seem more excited, donating a $1 million check or spending a week physically helping others? <laughs> it's a trick question. So what warms my heart is serving people. What is more impactful is that million dollar check. And uh, I have to humble myself enough to be able to say, it's more important for me to find the million dollar check and to bring that and deploy it, even though, gosh, I would love to be able to go hands on and just serve and be present with people for a week. It's that same feeling of donating to the administration costs versus actually donating to the kid. It's like, man, I, I want to help them, but I also want to make that impact. It's like donate a million dollars will do that to, to help a lot of people. So it's. This is a piece that I would, it's kind of that notion of teach a man, give a man a fish and they'll eat dinner, teach them to fish and they'll have food for a lifetime. Sometimes I think that the bigger piece for us, the harder piece is that we just want to give somebody dinner for tonight. We want to give them a fish. Where we make the biggest impact in this world is when we're able to change the systems and structures and fund the systems and structures that can make wide scale impact. Right. And. You got you to gotta decide that for yourself. And my suggestion is do some of both. Yeah, good answer. Um, who inspires you with their giving? My daughter. I mean, I was sitting there thinking like all these celebrities and all these other people that I've worked with and I've been on both sides of that receiving donations and giving donations over the years. But the person that inspires me the most is my daughter. I was thinking about it at, at age 17. Uh, she's a little entrepreneur. She has two businesses that she runs you know, out of her house and stuff. And yet at 17, she's already calculated how much of each sale goes into this bucket for giving. And she is very deliberate about what she gives to and how much she gives. And um, that's just really core to her to see that we've been able to transfer that value to her as a teenager where, gosh, don't we all want to keep our own money as a teenager? Um, and just seeing her in action and hear her talk to other people about how important it is to serve. She's got an heart. I have to get her on the show. Yes. <laughs> Do you think that every business should start giving from day one or wait until they've seen some success and some, and have some money in the bank account? Day, day one, they won't, but it's a philosophical choice. It's a values decision in my opinion. So if you wait until you have money, what you just said is it's not that important to you. I would rather you give a tiny amount, 1%, give a half a percent, give $1 even, but make it part of your formula, part of your business strategy from day one and wait until the perfect time to start donating because perfect time will never come and it will never be as deep a commitment at that point. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it any better. Um, what do you think of when you hear go big to give big? We have the opportunity in life to play small and we have the opportunity to play big. And if you're going to make an impact, if you're here on purpose in this lifetime, if you were put here for a reason that's bigger than you, you have no choice. You have a responsibility, a duty, an obligation to go big, go big in business, go big in your family, go big in your community, go big in the ways that you serve, go big in the impact that you will make in this lifetime before you depart. Boom. I freaking love that answer. Um, in one word, describe the feeling you get when you give. Humility. Humble. Great word. Final question for you today, Paul, as we wrap this up. Do you believe that money can buy you happiness? No, I don't. Mm. But I think that it can show you pathways to happiness. I firmly believe more money amplifies what the values that you already hold. It's it amplifies our personalities. And so if giving, if serving, if impact are important values, it will amplify those. If being a happy person was an important value before, money will make it happen faster. It will make it happen expeditiously. Love that answer. 
Very, very amazing, Paul. Dude, I cannot thank you enough for coming in today and dropping almost 60 minutes of just pure value for, for our listeners. How do people get more in touch with your content or the Make Money Matter Foundation or anything you're about to launch or, or anything you got on the go? So Make Money Matter Foundation, you can find them on socials, on Instagram. It's make.money.matter uh, and follow us there. Uh, makemoneymatter.org if you are on the web. Um, and for me, it's paulraspa.com. Would love to hear from you and hear how we can help you grow together. That's amazing, man. Well, uh, cannot thank you enough for coming in and inspiring us to go bigger with our dreams and goals so we can give bigger with our profits. And uh, I'm just looking forward to continuing to build this friendship and having you be a part of our lives and help us continue to scale this mission and uh, just watch what you do with Make Money Matters. So thank you again for coming in. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the show. If you know someone who's an example of Go Big to Get Big, we would love if you could share this with them. We want to get our message out to as many listeners as we can. And it all starts by having people like you share it with your friends. Also, if you enjoyed the show, take 30 seconds and give us a five-star review. It's a simple act of giving that is free for you, helps us grow our message, and in return, allows others to find us sooner. And until the next episode, remember, always go bigger with your dreams and goals so you can give bigger with your profit.